Hello and welcome to Film Kid Asks, the podcast where I ask questions to working professionals in the film industry from the perspective of someone just getting started. My name is Jordan and today I'm joined by Emmy-nominated writer and producer from projects like Mad Men, Ophelia, and The Eleventh Hour, Semi Chalice. She's just released American Woman, her directorial feature debut, which is now available on iTunes. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm so happy to be here. So you have a Bachelor of Arts in Literature from Yale University and a Mellon Fellow in English at Cornell University. How was your university experience? Um, It feels to me now like it was unrelated to what I ended up doing with my life, but I do recognize that it was a huge uh, experience in so many ways. Um, I didn't study film or dramatic arts or television or anything like that. I just did literature. English and French uh, in graduate school as well. So I read a lot and I did a lot of theory and I did a lot of theater sort of outside of school, but um, it wasn't a direct line, I think, to what I ended up doing. Right. So do you think that in any way um, you've leaned on some of the things that you learned from English literature and that it's helped you in your career at all? You know, it definitely helped Uh, just to read good writers, I guess, and to sort of have that classic liberal arts education, I think, really helped me, you know, learn to think. I was very cowed when I started writing. I knew I wanted to start writing. And when I sat down to finally write, I think I thought that I would turn out Pride and Prejudice right away. (laughs) And when that didn't happen, I was a little stunned. Um, So, you know, writing is the one thing that you can sort of see and it looks easy when you're the audience for it. It can look really easy. In fact, the best writing often looks very easy. Um, and then when you start to do it, you realize that, you know, it, in some way it takes a lot of practice and honing your skills in the same way that playing an instrument might. Right. That totally makes sense. How did you end up getting into film? How did that path kind of happen? You know, it's so funny. It was very sideways, and um, it was in large part because of John Fawcett, who also appeared on your podcast. But um, John and I went to high school together, and we did a lot of plays and put together a lot of theater and shows, and he was already directing and editing his own little movies, and I shouldn't even say little. Like, he did an epic two-hour feature, as I'm sure he talked about. Anyway, so um, he had gone to the Canadian Film Center, and while he was there wanted to make a short film and he I think wrote me a letter maybe called me on a landline because it was a long time ago and asked me if I would write a short film for him and I never had written a short film but um with that same arrogance I was like well how hard could it be so I put the script and typed it up and I drove like 35 miles to fax it to John It's like a period movie. And I faxed it to him and he was like, great, thanks so much. And if I remember correctly, he didn't give me any notes or whatever. And about like two and a half months later, he sent back a VHS copy of the film he'd made, which was brilliant. It was called The Half Delson. And uh, that was my first introduction to the whole world of it. And I thought, wow, this is great. This is really easy. It was never that easy again. So I was out in Montana. I was just trying to write and... um, Then I was in upstate New York writing, and um, at some point, the film center called me and asked me if I was interested in applying. It was very new at the time, and I thought I would try it just for a while. It was at the time a nine-month program, so I applied. I went to the nine-month program, but the nine-month program was actually, half of it was a workshop program, and then the back half, you had to apply to sort of re-up with a feature, and I applied, and I didn't get chosen. 
So I was in Toronto and I had written a bunch of short scenes and stuff for the film center and learned a bunch of stuff. And I was going to return to New York. Um, and I met Bruce McDonald at a party and he started telling me about a dream he had. And I was like, oh, that would make an amazing movie. You dream movies. And he said, oh, well, if you write it, I'll pay your rent until we get financing. So I did. Otherwise, I think I would have left. That's fascinating. <laughs> it's interesting hearing how, you know, some people know exactly what they want to do and some people kind of, uh, they fall into it in very peculiar ways. But that's Yeah, awesome. you know, it, it's funny. I really, I knew I wanted to be a writer. I always thought I would write novels. And, you know, as I said, I spent my college years reading novels, mainly in literature. And even though I had done a lot of theater, it had never occurred to me to write drama. And um, it turns out that that's what I love to do. You know, for many years, I even, as I wrote scripts, I was still writing fiction and thinking that I would return to fiction and then I really found that I love the collaborativeness of film and of television. So you've said in the past that you're a very detailed outliner when it comes to your writing. What does your research process look like? It's funny that I say that because I am a very detailed outliner. I do a lot of planning. And then when I come to write, I usually throw it all away. <laughs> First, with research, I like to take on projects that are worlds or things that I don't know that much about and sort of learn my way through them. It's almost a way to check myself into writing because at first I just start to like absorb and read. When I do period stuff, which I've done a lot of stuff that, you know, is from different eras, I like to start with things from the era and not read about the era, but actually try to immerse myself in what people at the time would have read or been thinking about and um, you know, for instance, on Mad Men, we had a great room full of all the Time magazines, all the Life magazines, all the New Yorkers, all the New York Times from the years we were writing about. And we tried to sort of steer clear of, you know, this is what the 60s meant. Um, so I do that. And then my next favorite thing is once I start knowing a little bit, I like to talk to people. I really like it when people will explain to me what they know about or what they think about rather than having to read it. So as soon as I can, I try to find people who are either, you know, from the era or experts in the era that will talk to me. And after that, I outline. But that all feels partly like my outlining process. I feel like as I go through all that discussion and reading and immersion, I start to usually see a shape for the thing, whether it's a season of television or a feature, I start to feel the shape of it. Oh, it should be like this. And I try to just get that on paper. And sometimes what I actually do is draw a shape, like, or I have a big whiteboard and I'll be like, I think it's like this and it's this part is here and this part is here. And I, lately I've been trying to convince people when they'll listen that I then shouldn't write a whole prose document as an outline. Once I have that shape sort of filled in and that I really know the parts that if I can tell the story, I can go write it. And so I'm lucky enough now that a lot of people will let me just get on and tell them. I'm doing a mini series right now that's five hours. And a couple months ago, I uh, got the network on the Zoom and I just told the entire five hours and it took like three hours. So wow. it was almost in real time. Um, and they let me sort of proceed to draft. That's awesome. So once you've done the research and have done some of the outlining, what are the next steps of the process when you actually start writing? Again, it's like because of 
all that research, I often will have documents saying like, oh, see this. And then I'll copy whole pages of documents into them and I'll have images stuck in there and sometimes whiteboards and all that stuff. And then I really have to like shed it to write. I have to not look at any of that stuff, not be tied to it. And I think the process of telling the story over and over again, telling it to myself and talking it out with people, it sort of ends up in me so that I can move instinctively through the script. I don't write in order, which is really inconvenient on the level of career, and I don't recommend it, but I always just write the parts that I really know right away. Like if I'm like, oh, I just know in the end it's going to be like this and we're going to feel like this, I'll just write that first. And once I write those other scenes will start to seem easy because I'll be like, oh, well, that's just the scene right before. So it's got to be like this or the scene right after. So I'll do that. And usually around that time, somebody says, can we just see your first act or can we like read some pages? <laughs> it's like, oh my God, no, you totally can't. Because a lot of the times at that point, I have all the notes in the script and all the images in the script and it's just a big dog's breakfast. Um, I do that just little by little by little. And at some point, there's usually like three or four scenes that I just don't want to do and I haven't done them. And then I look to see if I can just get rid of them and just never do them. Because often those scenes that really resist you like that, you just don't need. There's a reason that they don't want to get written and maybe they're boring. They're usually boring if you're not interested <laughs> in writing them. That's usually the problem. So don't write a boring scene because it's going to be a boring scene and then it's going to get cut eventually. Yeah. No, that totally makes sense. And that's very interesting to hear. So how does your process change or does it from project to project, whether it's TV or film or, you know, something you're creating versus something that you're adapting or just part of a room? How does that process change? Well, it's a really good question. I feel like it actually changes with every single thing. Um, and also, I'm very process oriented in that I'm always like shouting in the writer's room, just trust the process. <laughs> I, like I do really, I'm very interested in how other people work. I'm very interested in discovering how writers work and trying to work with their processes rather than impose any things on people. I really think it's so different for different people. It's so different every time. That said, I do always need to begin with that feeling that I can tell the story, which always has to do with finally being able to sort of swallow the whole um, elephant of it, you know, so that I feel the shape from beginning to end. And for television, that usually means the whole season or like in the case of miniseries, the whole show. I need to get to a point where I can see this is what the finale of the season would be, even if I'm only writing the pilot, which can be a lot of work. But in some ways, the more you eliminate down that tunnel, more it eliminates the pilot that you're trying to write. And with features, features are usually so story driven that you should be able to tell them quite simply. And if there's a subplot, you know, jump out and tell that as well. And then it's just a question of how those weave together. Um, it takes me a long time to notice patterns in myself. And that's true for my writing and for everything. But, you know, over the years, I guess I've noticed that I'll launch in, I'll write all the easy scenes, all the second most easy scenes, then I'll run aground and really question my existence on the planet. And I'll sort of lie on the floor several days and finish the script. And every single time I think that I'm like actually going to retire this time and I'm not going to finish the script and I have to give all the money back or whatever it is. But it really obviously is part of my process to run aground and then really triage the end. So 
there are things like that that I've noticed over time that I try to be respectful of, but there's really no way to get in control, right? Because it's so much mixed up with your unconscious and the part of you that starts dreaming about your story or, you know, the part of you that can talk to the characters and hear when they don't sound like themselves. Um, But I do really believe in my rooms, I always try to find a way right at the beginning of the whole endeavor to foreground how different people work and how they tell stories differently and how they approach it differently, both because of who they are, but also on an intellectual level. And I try to hear that and I try to honor that because it's definitely how you get people's best work. That definitely makes sense. So you've adapted several books and properties. What are some of the challenges associated with that? Um... The main challenge of adaptation, I think, is that you're almost always adapting something that is much richer and huger and bigger and longer and more detailed than a script. Not necessarily than the final movie, right? Because when you get it back into movie form, it will have all those layers that movies have of, you know, sound and design and cinematography and the actors will bring their whole unconscious world to the screen. It's almost like... I forget what the name is, but like when you dry out mushrooms and then you re-add water. So when you're adapting, you have to go through this desiccation process, right? Where you strip out of the book or whatever it is, the story, the most essential primal elements and form them into their own story that can stand where you somehow bring along in some kind of form all the rest of the book that you couldn't fit in. And then when all those elements like the actors and the design and director, if it's not you, come back into the process, they will come in with the right flavor, even if it's not exact. On my movie, American Woman, which is an adaptation of a novel by Susan Choi, and the novel has four parts told from different points of view. Obviously, it's very intricately written. And my lead actress, Hong Chao, carried the novel around with her on set. So she sort of was using that well of information to fill in what you know, in comparison was very schematic in the script. And also in directing that, I felt like I brought that sense of like the fullness. So, which is not to say that your script has to be a shallow version. It's just that novels in particular tend to be really internal and really about how the character feels and thinks. And when you translate that into a script, you have to translate it into action or you have really a boring movie. That totally makes sense. So kind of going back to your work in TV, what are some of the biggest challenges of writing for television? Well, definitely the challenges are also the things that make it really fun. Like working with other people is a huge one. Like, you know, when you write a feature, you are temporarily the god of your own world. And maybe some directors feel like that. I didn't feel like that. (laughs) But when you work in television, even if you're the showrunner, there's a kind of collaboration and there's, you have to embrace the otherness, right? You want to embrace the multiplicity of voices in a room, or even if you're not in a room, if you're extending over episodes, you're going to have all kinds of difference mixed in with what you even sometimes can grasp. And TV for me becomes more of a leap of faith where sometimes you are seeing the big picture 
and you can't quite see the details of little things like an idea will sound good and you don't really understand how it's going to work, but you sort of slot it in and fit it in. And then when you see the episode, sometimes you see why it worked in the big picture. It's almost like TV is too big for any one brain to inhabit. The closest that I've seen is Matthew Weiner, the showrunner of Mad Men. I always say, and it's not a joke, he like approved every matchbook on that show. He would open every drawer of the background secretary desk and see what was in there and it would all be period. You know, there would be like family photos of the background performer, you know, with their quote unquote family all in period dressed. All the underwear was period, right? It was meticulous detail. The filing cabinets were full on that set. And Matthew like approves everything. He was integrally part of the music, the costume design, all of that stuff. But you can't do that on every level. So he had to empower people to run the room, to lead the departments and get it almost to where he could find something to respond to. Um, so that's the challenge of TV. Is really, TV is too much for any one person to actually do. So it requires the strength of vision and the skill of communicating that vision first to the people who are making it with you without drowning them out and you know, allowing room still to hear the voices that will make it bigger than you. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. It's really interesting. So you've produced on a lot of the shows that you've written for. Can you explain to me what a writing producer is? So in television, the writer-producer credit is partly just a convention that because writers are so much the form of television, um, as you sort of rise through the ranks in a television room, you start to add a producer level to your title. You've definitely met people who, you know, particularly in network TV in the United States, have just been in writers' rooms all the time and are at the executive producer or co-executive producer level, but have never been in an editing room, you know, or who follow their scripts to set and sort of are the voice of the writers' room on the set. But I guess because I've worked in lots of different sort of formats and because I really like to produce it also is meant for me, you know, really taking the reins on some shows and following them right through the process of pre-production all the way through the mix. Um, you know, I always say this is like random advice, but I always say to people who want to take on that role, first of all, I think that knowing all of those steps really helps you do television on all these levels. It becomes part of your creative process to make something that can be makeable at its best level and like sort of understanding what you actually are working with and writing within that understanding is really a good way to do television and is producing in some level. Um, But I always think that the best way to learn it is to make a short film, whether it's like on a phone or, you know, Alexa mini or however you do it, whatever level, taking one idea, one story through that entire process, really, really, really valuable in terms of understanding you know, from an editing perspective, I'm, when you start to understand your writing from the point of view of editing, it's always a learning curve. And I had it again when I directed, even though I've been through that process and I've also been in a million editing rooms and television to have shot something and then be editing was again a huge leap for me. Um, and I was lucky because, you know, working with John Fawcett in high school, I had gone through a bunch of those steps and we had like taken a bunch of projects through those steps. And so I had edited, you know, music videos. I had edited little things before I even was writing for television and it was just invaluable. That was my film school sort of, I guess, is, is making those short films. That makes sense. So 
kind of going off of that, you've worked as a writer and producer throughout your career with some very high level and talented people. So what are some of the things that you've learned from them that you've brought into your own process, whether that be directing, writing, producing? Yeah, I mean, I've had the privilege of working with some amazing people. The two basic things that they all have in common, because in some ways, there's no people more different than some of the people I've worked with. Uh, that do the same job. And so that's one of the lessons is there's no one way to be a director. There's no one way to be a showrunner. People really all come to it with their strengths and their weaknesses. And the smartest, best people are really able to consolidate around their strength and get help from talented people with the things they don't know. And in the end, that was what made me think, oh, maybe I can direct a movie, which was very daunting idea to me. Um, especially because I've known so many people who literally just have a gift like to do that. And I was like, I don't know if I have a gift, but I think I know what I know. And I think I know what I don't know, which is really important. And so the second thing would be to really trust the people that you surround yourself with. Never, ever, ever work with someone that you're like iffy about. And once you've chosen those people to collaborate with, make it a true collaboration you know, choose the people and then let them do their thing. You know, don't try to control it, I guess. That's certainly something I learned working with actors way back. It's like, once you have an actor who is good and knows what the movie you're making is or what the story is that you're telling, let them do their thing, you know, which doesn't mean like don't shape the performance, but don't micromanage it, right? And I guess the last thing would be that 10 of the most talented people making something will all come out with a jumble unless there's someone really with vision and with leadership, which again, can take all different forms. And I've seen it take, you know, the quietest, most sort of non-egoistic form. I've seen it take the most egoistic form, but somebody's got to be able to like keep everyone not just knowing what you're doing, but inspired to do it really well. And that more than anything turns out to be the job, right? Of show running, of directing, even sometimes when you're the writer of a screenplay, even though in that case, you're the least empowered usually of the sort of above the line creative team. Sometimes it's still about like articulating your vision and getting everyone on board, even if they sort of march on without you when they go into production. Right. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, that that makes sense. Obviously, everyone does have a completely different style of leadership, but it is um, important, especially at this young stage where I think a lot of us student filmmakers have very specific ideas of what we want to do in our head. It can be hard to relinquish that control. Um, So I think it's important to remind ourselves of that. If you're bringing someone on, you have to bring someone on, you know? It's really true. It's so funny. So I worked with um, Steve McQueen, the director of 12 Years a Slave, and I heard this story about when he was shooting um, Shame, which takes place in New York City. So his line producer told me this story about they had permission to shoot a subway letting out in a subway station, and they had permission to shoot like a little part of a street in the way that you can sometimes get permission where you just put up a sign. It's like, if you walk through this, then you're in our movie. So, right. you know, whatever. So the only way they could do it was on the same night. So they set up at night outside the subway station and they set up inside the subway station. And then Steve, who is just brilliant, like 
he's just brilliant. He's like touched. Like he literally, you see ideas just drop from the sky. You could almost see them like enlighten him. So he was standing out there and he was like directing the scene. And then they'd be like, okay, the train's coming. And he would like run down the stairs into the subway and the train would pull in and screech and the doors would open. And he would be like, over here, go over here, go back there. Over here. What are you doing? Go over there. Just to like random people getting off the train in the middle of the night. Right. And then the train would like, the doors would shut and it would pull away and he would like run upstairs and action and they would like start shooting on the street and he did that all night and I heard that story and it was like something popped in my brain where I was like he gets what he needs doesn't matter if it's like in the movie or not in the movie it doesn't matter if people are like signed up to do it or they just walk past the sign and his love and energy uh, his excitement about it just brings that quality. If you've seen his movies, you know they span all these different subjects, but they all have such a connection to something really primal. For whatever reason, I always think of that story when I That's... think of like, because I've also seen people who wear suits to set every day and, you know, direct in a way and come with storyboards and shot lists and do it that way. And there's not a better way. That's a great story. Um, so I think it's important now to talk about your directing and your experience directing. So uh, obviously you've just released American Woman. Just generally, uh, before we get into the more nitty gritty, how was the experience of directing for the first time? Oh my God, I loved it. I really loved it. And I think the second day on set, I was like, oh my God, I have to do another one of these. And everyone's laughing at me. I mean... I most feared the part where you're on set because that was really the thing I hadn't done before as a producer was create the shots and create the performances myself. And I really loved it. I learned so much from doing it in a way that I have worked next to so many directors. I have gone through this process so many times in all the meetings or whatever, and it was still different. That was really amazing to discover. Um, I really learned that there are so many sort of assumptions running on a ticker tape through my brain whenever I'm on a set that when you're the director, you have to say out loud. And then it turns out not everyone is making them, which is really interesting. Like there was one moment where someone came in with like a basket or something into the set. And I was like, I don't think she has that basket. And they were like, oh, is this scene on the page right before because it doesn't say continuous and it was just you know mistake I had just not put in the slug line it was like night to night and I was like oh you know this is the smallest thing but it's so obvious to me that this action is continuous but it's not obvious right right and then I understood how you could read a script where many of the scenes leapt you know days ahead or months ahead or whatever how you could read it differently and it was eye-opening to me that it's all communicating all the time, even if it seems so simple what you're trying to say. Nobody's thinking the same. We're all so different. And that was really fun. It was like, it kind of deepened my experience of collaboration. Um, That lesson played out over and over again. I had a brilliant cast. I had Han Chow, as I said, and Sarah Gadden, and a bunch of other actors who were just wonderful. Watching the film, um, it's it was surprising to me that you didn't have this background in working with actors and the shot compositions. The cinematographer did such an amazing job, as did you, um, setting those up and camera moves and stuff. I was really impressed uh, with the performances and the camera moves, which is interesting because those are the two things that you brought up as <laughs> things that you hadn't done before. Um, oh, that's really- so nice. Thank you. I had worked with a cinematographer that is an old friend of mine for a couple years towards making the movie. The movie kept coming together and falling apart. And um, at the last moment, my 
friend couldn't do it, which was devastating. Like I literally was like, I can't imagine making the movie without him. So he uh, is a Canadian who was on Game of Thrones as a cinematographer. And the reason he couldn't was because he had to go off and do Game of Thrones. And he said, do you know Greg Middleton, um, who's also on Game of Thrones, who I had actually met at the film center, amazingly. He shot one of the, not mine, but one of the exercises while I was there. And he said, I would give him a call. And I called Greg and he got on a plane the next day and came to New York. And then the film fell apart again. And he stuck with it and stayed with it for more than a year while we put it back together. And so we had this year where he not just stayed attached, but every time that we were in the same place, we would get together, go through the script, talk, draw. We would take all these pictures. Um, if you want to make movies and you don't have Artemis on your phone, download it immediately. It's like a viewfinder thing that you can put on the phone. And so we had this really long time for sort of pre-planning and like with the outlining, you know, when it came to set, we sort of threw it all to the winds, but we had talked and digested and discussed and visualized every scene so much. We were able to work on instinct. We'd like made it our instinct. Um, so it was an amazing collaboration. I owe so much to him and he was so dedicated and so much fun to do the movie with. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. So what uh, excites you moving forward about directing? Because it doesn't seem like you're stopping anytime soon. What is What excites you about that process? You know, it's funny because I was like, I came off the movie, I have another movie that I wanted to make that's not period. So American Woman is set in 1974 and going into it, a lot of people said like, oh, you know, that's going to be challenging. And I was a little bit of a know-it-all. I was like, yes, I know. I've been on a lot of period stuff, and I know the challenges. None of the cars will start. You know, we'll lose all this time trying to, like, move out background extras. I really still underestimated the level of difficulty that doing a period movie brought to it. I mean, it was really fun in certain ways and really interesting in certain ways, but you can't do that Steve McQueen thing of running into the subway, right? Because everything has to be managed. Every time you go again, you have to reset every car and stop traffic so that only your period cars will go by, even the deepest background. And, you know, American Woman is about fugitives. So they're staying away from people. They're in small towns. They're on the road. I did that on purpose. I mean, I chose that story on purpose because I thought it would make those things manageable. But I'm really looking forward to doing something contemporary. You know, uh, on the Romanoffs, which I EP'd, in my episode, there's a shot down Fifth Avenue in New York that goes for like 40 blocks, you know, and it's like, it has to be contemporary to do that. So I'm really looking forward to doing that. Um, I was really hoping to do some television and particularly to do a pilot, but I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen now. Oh, Corona. Um, I know. Oh, Corona. It's really interesting because it, feels like this moment where women in particular and people of color are starting to make enormous inroads into these roles that had been, if not foreclosed, challenging to inhabit right at the time when nobody's shooting anything at all. It's like facepalm, right? Like six months ago, even I thought, you know what, someone's going to maybe let me direct a pilot, even though I've only done this one feature, because they're really trying to make room for women directors and all that stuff. And now it's like, I wonder what will happen when scarcity takes over again. Although I do think that in Canada, it looks much more likely or hopeful in terms of moving into production in 2020. Hopefully. Yes. Um, Knocking wood. So 
kind of winding down now, do you have any advice for student writers working on short films and low budget films and things to keep in mind uh, when writing for low budgets and, you know, short page counts? Yeah, I mean, I have so much advice. My main thing is that it's much better to really consider what you're working with when you write, I think. Um, not everyone would agree with that, but I put on my list of films and I'm going to throw Hunger in there by Steve McQueen as well. A lot of those are first films or made on um, shoestring budgets. And I really think that the most successful work that people make early on or low budget or even, you know, when they're deep in their careers, but they're working with modest budgets is thought for that. If you can sort of know what you're working with. And like I said, the more you get experience and the more you make, the more you understand what it really means to have X amount of resources or X amount of time and to be ambitious within a realistic framework, I think. Um, I spent a lot of time when I first started writing, writing big and then sizing stuff down, you know, like writing huge night scenes with crowds and then realizing that I was going to have to put them inside or you know, make them day. And I, I got very good at making those changes. And it's always served me that I can make everything like simplified and whatever, and that I know how. But the mistake I made as a young writer was to think that big was real, like somehow like the bigger the canvas and the more it was about, I don't know, hitmen and whatever, the more that it would be sort of real movies. And the longer I go along, the more I notice that the most successful stuff always comes from people's heart, from their lived experience, and from what they're curious about. So much of being a screenwriter or being a writer for television, so much of what you do doesn't get realized. And there's no other form of writing that's like that, really. And it's really frustrating. And the more that you have a plan and see the whole going into it, I think, the better. That said, the other advice I always give people in workshops that I do is everything is writing in a way, like interesting people and do interesting stuff and it all kind of counts, you know. Um, I also spent a long time when I was younger setting my alarm and sitting down at like 9 a.m. and working until 6 and mostly just like going like, how does everyone else do this? What's happening right now? And it just didn't get me anywhere. I mean, you do have to have a certain kind of discipline, I think, to do anything, but it's like live your life and know yourself. That's my advice. That's great advice. Thank you. So one last piece of advice that I'm looking for is what advice would you give to students that are just starting it now that would like to be in your position one day? Kind of coming at it from more of a mentality thing, work ethic thing, because obviously you're very successful, not only as a writer, but also as a producer, and now you're directing. So um, for people that have multiple interests and want to do it well in film, what advice would you give? Um, so like in terms of that one big piece of advice I always give people is like collaborate with your friends and with your peers and stick with them, you know, because in the end, that's who you come up with. And that's how I started out. And it really carried us all along in some way, even when we weren't working together, you know, to know each other, I guess, and to watch other people find their way. You can always, you know, make stuff with your friends and I think that everything that you make becomes experience that you kind of bank. Um, you know, a lot of people are always like, how do you get an agent? And I was like, forget an agent, like find your most talented classmate and like stick to them like a burr. You know? um, and the other weird advice that I would say, it's funny because I know I'm successful, but it never feels quite like that to me. I always feel like, you know, American women took 
over 10 years to get it made. And obviously I worked on other things during that time or whatever, but by the time I was actually on set shooting and the bank loan still wasn't closed my first day of shooting. And I was like, is this even really happening? Like, are we there yet? I'm, you know, I have children that are like in elementary school that weren't even an idea I had when I first adapted the script and here we are. So you can't sort of measure your own success against the way you're feeling. You have to keep going and just keep doing it and not be discouraged. I mean, for all the times that people have said, but somebody rewrote me or the director wrecked it or whatever, it's like, all I can say is do another one. You know, you got to have a million of them. And for a really long time, I tried to make sure that I could only work on projects that really excited me by continuing to be a waitress and then a bartender for a really long time and to take on other jobs. And I was a reader and I did a lot of things so that I didn't have to go work on things that I didn't believe in because I knew I wouldn't be good at it. So without being too, too picky, I tried to stay the course, write about stuff I cared, even when I started working for money. Um, which is all to say it's a business, but like you have to try to live it like an artist. That's my advice. <laughs> That's great advice. It's very quotable advice. Um, <laughs> it's awesome. So now I'm going to open it up to a few of my friends to ask questions. How do you know what kind of feedback you need to incorporate into your script? And I suppose a follow-up question to that is how do you like protect your feelings or kind of just put like yourself to the side so you can focus on cutting out scenes or cut it like I guess killing your darlings in a way yeah it's a great question I mean that is a huge huge part of the job of being a writer and it's always really uncomfortable and I've come over the years to realize that if it's not uncomfortable it's not working right like it doesn't ever feel good because if it's not feeling weird to get notes on your script then you hand it in your script too early right? It's like when I hand anything in, I will often show my friends, my peers, my trusted readers, I'll show them stuff before I give it to the producers of the network or whatever. But when I hand it in, I want it to be dazzling every time because unfortunately, as much as people are like, no, we're here to collaborate with you. We want to like help you. Like you want to dazzle them every time because you need that forward momentum to get stuff actually made. So it's always going to suck to hear what's wrong with the script or what didn't work. So my process, which I just have to walk myself through every single time is like, just listen, take it in. If anything sparks an idea, like you have that conversation, if anything is confusing or you don't get it, ask questions to clarify, but really treat it as information. That's what they say in Silicon Valley about notes. They call it information, right? You need information about what you were trying to do and whether it worked and whether it should have worked. And then you usually need a digesting process. So I mostly treat actual notes or notes calls, which I always try to do in person or as a call rather than written because written notes are very little help to me and a lot of work for the person who has to do them. But try to just be listening, be open and take it in. And then like go work out your feelings, go cry on someone's shoulder or whatever, but like separately take that out of the professional context. And then I think you have to begin that process again of digesting and chewing and whatever, like think about the notes. Sometimes it's like worrying them like resentfully, like worry beads or something where it's like, how could they have said that wasn't heartbreaking? That's like the best moment or whatever. And what you'll find is if you can just be open to it and take it and work through your resentment, very slowly you'll start to sort of digest them and some of them will never stick. You'll just think that's just not true about the thing or I don't want to do it that way or it's never going to work that way or whatever. Some of them will be like, well, I did want that to be moving. So if it's not working, why is it not working? 
And what I do is I go through that process. I write, I go back to the people I've talked to. I go back to the research. I go back to my outlines. I sort of just try to confuse myself until I somehow break my connection with that draft that I thought was perfect that I handed in. And then I just start the process again. Like I start telling myself the story again. Now it's not going to be all new, right? Because it's in you, but you start telling yourself the story again, looking at the shape again, doing whatever you did on the way to that draft with the kind of broken parts of it. So in a funny way, I always go back to outline, unless it's like, you know, checklist notes where it's like lines of dialogue, the kind of polishy notes you get at the end of the process. For every big draft, I really go back to first principles. And I used to start typing the script again on every draft. I would print out the first draft and have it next to me, but I would actually start writing again and rewrite it. Then what I found is that too often people don't tell you what they did like. And sometimes I would get rid of all the stuff they did like, and then be like, where's that part? Where's that part? So now I try to do a hybrid of that. But you really have to go through that sort of dog's breakfast stage again, where you really blow it up and then just find your own ability to tell the story or know the story again. To the second part of your question, I think that's what keeps it protected about the parts that you care about is that they can't possibly go away without it making the story incoherent to you. Um, And it's much better than the sort of one-on-one resistance. If people say like, make this character more like this, and it's just a prescriptive note and you're like, I'm not doing it. And then it's just a tug of war. If you can just let it be, what if she was more like that in that scene? What would come out? What would be next? It's a lot of work. And a lot of my projects, I've been through a lot of drafts. American Women is a hilarious computer file of draft after draft after draft after draft. And then I did that in editing as well. I had edit after edit after cut after cut after cut to the point where it's been in all the orders. It's been in all the directions. You know, there's stuff in the middle of the movie that was the opening of the first draft I wrote 10 years ago. But somehow I always knew what the story was and what it would be as a whole. That's awesome. That's actually so helpful. Thank you. (laughs) But I've been thinking a lot about discomfort and learning right now in this situation politically and in the world we're in and with coronavirus and with the anti-racist work that people are really trying to do. It's all true that real change feels really uncomfortable. That's why that's what most stories are about, right? (laughs) Real change means living in discomfort, even when you think that you should be immune from it for whatever reasons. And it's true of changing your script. When you get notes and they're big, if you want to move forward, the script is going to have to change and you will not want to do it. And it won't feel good at first. So the more that you can walk yourself through a process in total openness and receptiveness and hopefully trust and collaboration with the people that are trying to change it or engaging in changing it, realizing that they don't have an agenda either, except to make it better and more makeable. Um, Mm -hmm. It only feels to them like they have an agenda when you resist, right? Then they're like, no, we're going to make her change that second act because (laughs) we gave her that note and she's not listening. But if you can take that out of the process, you're more likely to come to a place of collaboration with whoever you're actually working with. Wow. That's awesome. I'm actually like, I finished like a draft, I suppose. And I I love what you had to say about collaborating with high school people. And because everyone in this call or a lot of people in this call are actually reading my work at the moment. And I feel like I really trust them. So it's nice to hear that's kind of where it's at. I, I still have three or four people that I've known now for like 20 years that I would not hand something in without at least two of them reading it. Again, because I 
I want to always have my best foot forward when I turn something in. And you develop a shorthand with people who've read a lot of your work, even if you don't agree, where you can hear what they're saying and you can trust it. I have my friend, Esther Spaulding, who I collaborate with. She's another Canadian and she's amazing showrunner. She runs on Becoming a God in Central Florida. And I don't know if this is her process like in her mind, but it's her process when you're on calls with her because we've co-written a lot, is she will like stay on the notes call. She will stay with the people giving notes until they work out what's going to happen. So she goes through that whole process of blowing it up and opening her mind and taking it in and comes right around really fast, faster than I can, even after millions of experiences of that, comes around to saying like, well, would it be like this? Do you mean something like this? What if we did this? And so she manages to take notes into this very, instead of reactive, very productive place and usually gets off a call with almost a checklist of what she needs to go do and she can jump right back into the script. And I really admire that. I only have that with my trusted readers. But with my trusted readers, I can hear the criticism and right away be open enough to be like, oh, okay, well, what if I did this? Would this help? Would this help? Would this help? And just start pitching. I was just asking, in your opinion, what makes a good scene? And how does a beginner writer like work towards that? Uh, that's such a good question too. And that's a question that I ask myself all the time because it's like, why is this scene not working is my constant question. I think that answer I learned in editing, which is it has to have a change in it, right? People talk about conflict and that is misguided, I think, because it makes it seem like people have to be mad at each other or even not working towards the same thing in a scene. I actually think a scene is a unit of an event and an event in a story is when something changes, whether the circumstances or their understanding or their feelings change. Otherwise, what happens is even when you write the most beautiful scene, when you come to editing, you get rid of it. For some reason, editing tells you what writing can't tell you about how efficient you have to be and move forward. You know, with American Women, I screened it in front of audiences all the time. We ran out of money. We were editing in an empty office at my agency. And my editor noticed that the agency, of course, had a screening room. And he was like, are we allowed to use that? So we asked. And they were like, sure, after eight. So we just started getting people that would come to watch it. And we would screen it every couple nights in front of an audience. And what we started to notice is parts that I thought you need that to understand the story, people would like mm, around, right? Um, if you've seen the movie, when they're holed up at the farmhouse, I have like twice as many scenes in that farmhouse that are all from the book. They're compelling, they're beautifully acted, and they just didn't change the circumstances. And in my mind, these people are hiding out. And the whole point is that nothing is changing over and over and over again. But weirdly, you make that point in one shot of her sitting on a porch. Then you're like, oh yeah, they sat there and nothing changed. Okay, now I'm done. So if I add three more scenes where nothing changes, it becomes just boring and everyone in the audience is like, okay, then what happened? You know, I think the best scenes answer the question, then what happened? That's a great answer. What advice would you give to someone writing their first TV pilot? Oh, that's a really good one. Okay, so I actually have advice that doesn't come from me, but comes from like what I've heard in the industry, which is that people really look for more than you would think worlds right now. I guess if it's network TV, like if you want to write for procedural or whatever, that's one thing. Then you want to write a very smart, tightly plotted version of that. That's not really my world, but in the world of cable and even where a lot of the networks are sort of moving, there's an emphasis on worlds we haven't seen. And people often bring up 
how the Sopranos did that, how Mad Men did that, how Breaking Bad did that, even Fleabag, Issa, uh, Rami, you know, Dave, even the half hours that are happening right now that are comedy, drama, hybrid. People are really looking for new worlds and, you know, obviously great writing, but that's what I always hear. My version of that would have been like, show your voice, you know, be original. And it doesn't have to be about you or your life or your world. You know, write what you know is swung around in dumb ways, I think, to put people in a box sometime. But I think that showing your heart and showing who you are in a pilot is really important because when they pick up your pilot, they make a giant leap of faith that you could, for seven years, continue to create something, right? And they only have a few pages to make that call. So it's like people just want to see, you know, your originality. I also think, and this is something I've thought a lot about because I'm doing a lot of mini series where the first hour is well on the way to the big event, right? It's like a mini series. It's like it's going to climax after five hours or whatever. It's still really important in the first episode that your central characters really show themselves as well and show their heart in the way that in a feature you can wait. You can wait until the end of the movie. You can wait until the end to really see who that person is. It's got to be in the pilot. Like, And the example I use, it's an easy go-to, but in the Mad Men pilot, which is just so brilliantly written, there's this moment where Don Draper, who is the sort of 1960s man in the suit, seems very sort of conventional, and he's having dinner with a woman that he's really interested in. He's talking to her about what it must be like to be her, to be a woman in business, and to not be able to be who she is. And he really needs something from her. It's like a good scene of what happened, right? He's trying to get her business for their firm. But he really starts talking in this way that you see into Don Draper's soul in that first episode. You see, he's not that person. He doesn't feel good about himself, not a happy person. He doesn't feel like the man he seems like. He feels like he's playing a role. All those themes that unfold in the whole series are in that first episode, in the scene, even though it seems like he's talking about someone else. And it's just like the best pilots, I think, like open a window into the deep soul of the main character. And I so often make the mistake of holding that stuff back because you're like, how could you get there in 30, 40 minutes? But when you think about it, a pilot is halfway through a feature, you know? And if you think of what features can take on in terms of whole epochs, like you have to be able to compress that in terms of character, if not event. That's great advice. That's really interesting. That world thing, though, is like something that came up a bunch of times when I was staffing on the last thing where people were like, mm, I don't know, I've sort of seen this world. And I was like, really? You know, like, and I think that it comes from the slight generic quality when people have picked something that they think will be cool and it's not something that they have a connection to. Um, and I think you can really feel when the writer has that true connection, even if it's just interest and, you know, even if it's sci-fi or, or horror or whatever. You sort of... We're just touching on it a little bit with the character, but I'm really curious about how you approach personality because it's something that's also so influenced by the director and the actors and like the editor even at the end. So how do you write it so that you get enough so that they have like a character, but not so much that it's restrictive or not too little that you don't get a sense of who they are? That's a great question too. I mean, I think, and this is just a personal thing, but I think when I'm creating characters that I have a whole fullness of the idea of them 
but it's like I'm putting a little bit of bait in a trap for a great actor. <laughs> if there's a scene where we're glimpsing something or we're seeing something that's possible in that character, and then it's a matter of casting almost, which that sounds like a cop-out, but like that same Don Draper scene is really on paper. You could read it as he is talking about that woman and what it must be like to be a woman in you know 1960 in business and she's Jewish and how she feels other. But the writer's keenly conscious that Don Draper is actually talking about himself. And so it's ineffable. Like you feel that potential without him saying it, which would wreck it, right? Because a 1960s masculine man is not gonna say that about himself. Um, but it's just the bait that you know that little extra thing. And then you bring an actor like John Hamm and he has so much vulnerability within this sort of John Wayne frame, you know? So he's like perfectly matched. And the story's about his first, oh, dog break. <laughs> the story about his casting sessions are exactly that, that the showrunner recognized that in him very much like in the audition, just recognize that here's a man who's super hunky man, really masculine man with a kind of wound that comes clearly through. And he's the kind of person who could play that scene. So it's hard when you're a screenwriter because you're not gonna necessarily be in control of that. But I guess it's really a question of how you can write great scenes with dynamics and also indicate that they have a subtext level. Barry Jenkins gave a workshop about directing that was just life-changing to me going into director's movie. And one of the things he said was, you know, on Moonlight, they didn't have much time. They had a really short schedule. They were casting people who he had only spoken to on the phone and who were like flying in to do like a couple days on this movie, but end up being in a third of the movie because their schedule was so compressed. And he said, I just wrote everything down in the script because everyone had to come to set knowing the same thing, being literally on the same page. So there's this idea that has floated around for a long time in screenwriting that it's not right to like direct the actors on the page or put too much information or you should just put movements or you should be very spare. And he was like, forget that. Like put everything that everyone needs to know, just write it down. You can just say like, this is heartbreaking because she's never heard anyone talk to her like this before. You know, then the actress could come up and be like, well, is this true? Haven't I heard this? Am I in denial? You know, so that you can start the conversation there. I think that's a really good sort of hack for especially low budget filmmaking. It's really helpful. Yeah. Thank you. That makes sense. So is that something as a writer that you've done where you've written something with subtext where then you maybe would mention that to the director so that they have a, a little bit of an understanding of what's going on in your head and the potential that you see for that scene? Yeah, I mean, definitely. Like, I personally will take every opportunity to tell people what I'm thinking, whether it's on the page. Like I said, I used to hone to this idea of you just very sparely describe what is happening and what we're seeing and have dialogue and then everything else can be filled in. And sometimes that works like deep into a show when everyone knows who's the cast and all that stuff. But it was just going wrong too much for me. And so I started trying to put more of it on the page. And then I also will just like talk anyone's ear off who will listen to me and tell them how I think it should be and have all the time in the world to communicate and hopefully work with people who want to hear it, you know? That said, when I was directing my movie, I was like, oh my God, thank God the writer's not following me around going like, it should be like this, it should be like this, because you also have to be able to be in the moment. There's somehow, and it's, again, it's like very magical how this works, but like if you have the story right and you have the scenes right and you have good actors playing the roles, 
then the story will like come to life. And even if it's different from what you expected, it will tell the same story. You have to be able to like let go of controlling every beat of it. But, you know, again, I've been on shows where the showrunner very successfully in the like so-called tone meeting went through the entire script and said, this set, this line should sound like this. This thing should look like this. Matthew Weiner had a thing where he would be like, this set has to be facing this way. She has to be on right of frame. And God forbid that the director would like flip it and the person would be on the wrong side of frame because it just was different from what Matt had in his head. And it really mattered to him. And so you got to be able to communicate things and get people to take them seriously. And then because it's a process, you have to be loose too and trust that the material will get there. Fascinating. Uh, All right. So before we wrap this up properly, I did ask you to prepare five, or in your case, six films uh, that you would recommend (laughs) to student filmmakers. So I'd love for you to kind of run through that list and talk a little bit about why Mm. you chose those films. Okay. Wait, I'm looking at my list. Okay. So number one was Chloe Zhao's The Rider, which I think is uh, just last year. It's just an incredible movie. It's a indie movie made, I think, with her and her cinematographer, um, very, very skeleton crew, and then she got a Marvel movie. So just in case you're like, <laughs> this is like a sort of little indie movie that I can watch later, just she's doing the next Marvel movie. Um, the Rider is about the culture of horse breaking in Montana, and she worked with real people, a real family, and interwove real pieces of their story into the story that she's telling, although it is fiction, which is really interesting it's so real including you watch this guy like tame a horse in real time a wild horse and you know the horse is not acting and it's compelling filmmaking it's beautifully shot it's beautifully put together it's for some people very problematic like the way that she's working with reality and I think that is part of the daring of it um I just really loved it I mean I just I don't know how you make a movie like that it's not something that I could do it but it's also very interesting that the illusion that it must actually be real is an illusion that she's creating very carefully and I think that that is the gift of that movie. I was really torn with Deborah Granick uh, whether to put on the list Winter's Bone or Leave No Trace which is her movie from a couple years ago. I love both of these movies. I love what she does. She's another social realist filmmaker. Um, Winter's Bone was Jennifer Lawrence's breakout. I don't know if it was her first movie, but she seems like a non-actor who's just incredibly gifted at being herself. So Winter's Bone has an excellent through line. It's really basic. There's a girl living in total poverty in the Ozarks with her family and her father has a debt and they're going to repossess the little house that they have, which is just a shack if her father doesn't pay her debt. So she just goes to look for her father. It's the simple, most primal and interesting premise for a story. And it just unfolds perfectly. It's just a great movie. And the way Deborah Granick puts together scenes is mind blowing. Leave no traces. That's amazing. Um, And she just has a way of working, again, with an illusion of total simplicity. Like, you can't imagine that these movies would have ever been otherwise than they are, that there could have been a shot that was different. Um, I put Andrea Arnold's American Honey, which is about a bunch of sort of grifter kids who live together in this bus and are led by this charismatic but possibly insane Shia LaBeouf. Um, not to be confused with Honey Boy, weirdly, but also with Shia but no, American Honey. Um, and again, there's a kind of social realist feeling to that movie. It's all shot at Magic Hour. And 
they apparently would work with the actors all day, sort of like working on the scenes and improvising and getting them together and then shoot them during magic hour. It's just a beautiful movie and it's so naturalistic. It feels hard to believe that there could have been a script or a plan or a vision driving it, but it's just incredibly compelling. Um, I'm going to stick Hunger by Steve McQueen in there, which is another movie I love. And his first movie, I think Winter's Bone was Deborah Granick's first movie. I could be wrong. Um, these are all first or second movies, interestingly. So Steve McQueen directed this movie about the troubles in Northern Ireland, about uh, a hunger strike in a prison there, and managed to infuse it with a huge sort of anguished cry for justice in a very sort of, again, deceptively simple seeming story of people in jail and hunger striking. And the centerpiece of that movie is like a 15 minute two-hander scene where a priest comes to talk to this guy who's gonna starve to death, protesting for his rights in prison. And they sit at a table in the prison visiting room in a totally empty room and talk for 15 minutes and you can't look away. I've watched that scene so many times and I actually was inspired by it for the opening of my movie where the main character is in prison and an FBI officer comes to um, interview her. And I looked at that and we sort of were inspired by it, but it's the writing is brilliant and the directing is brilliant and the acting is brilliant. And for that one scene alone, the whole movie is worth embracing, but it's a great movie and really shows also that aspect of Steve McQueen's work that I really admire, which is he just doesn't care about what the rules are. Like he's not going to hear that a scene shouldn't be 15 minutes. And it's almost all in two shot too. And everyone would tell you that you can't do that. So he doesn't care, um, which I love. And I put Badlands, directed by Terrence Malick, also a first feature, mind-blowingly, um, which is a huge influence for American women. Again, a movie I watched over and over because it's about two outlaws on the run. Sissy Spacek and uh, Martin Sheen play this young couple that burn down her house and go on the run. And it is just a very simply done, very compelling story about the inevitability that they will be caught. And they're just biding that time. And very much like the problems I was wrestling with in American Women, how do you tell a story of people just waiting to be caught, right? Um, just sort of on the run, but knowing that there's only two ways that it ends. And one is with a bullet and one with, with the door kicked in. Um, and then the last one I put is just like a personal favorite and a huge mentor of mine, Don McKellar, who's a Canadian filmmaker and actually was at the film center with John Fawcett. And he was in 1999, um, <laughs> you will all not remember this, but in 1999, everyone thought the world was going to end on the year 2000 for various reasons. And there was some European fund where they were going to make 10 episodes of television about the end of the world, like imagined by different filmmakers. And they gave Don this small amount of money to make a TV show. And he made an incredible feature starring Sandra Oh, who is just brilliant in this role. And it's set in Toronto. It's the last day of the world. Everyone knows that the world is going to end and that there's nothing to be done about it. And she is just trying to get home to have dinner with her husband. Again, a very, very simple premise of the story. And it takes her through this whole incredible, just pre-apocalyptic landscape of Toronto. Um, again, it's a very simple primal story. And it's so like beautifully imagined. And I think all of these filmmakers have in common that they just don't believe any of the rules that you hear 
about what you're supposed to do or what it's supposed to be like or what you can't achieve. And yet they've all worked within a scope and a context where they could make a perfect movie, even if they didn't have a ton of resources. And uh, I love Don's work and Don's writing, and I love him as an actor as well. Last Night still stands out to me as just an incredible first movie, just perfectly realized. Oh, wait, I have another one. Okay. <laughs> There's one more movie that I want to say, which is Lynn Ramsey's movie, Ratcatcher. Ratcatcher is a movie about kids during a garbage strike in sort of the world of her childhood that is just an incredibly, again, simple, compelling, beautifully made movie that has that social real quality of, it doesn't feel like the kids are acting. It doesn't feel like it could be possible to direct those performances. And yet, it's unfulding a story that brings on and, and that she definitely has something to say. I actually I just on. watched that. So that's, <laughs> oh, really? that's interesting. Yeah. My dad, uh, he was like, you need to see this. Oh, that's so interesting. It's funny. I taught screenwriting at a workshop in Uganda about 10 years ago and I screened two movies for the group and one was Ratcatcher and one was Do the Right Thing. And they're both like, you know, Ratcatcher is set in the UK in the 70s, I want to say. And it's like these little kids in the projects living in poverty and Do the Right Thing, which is another masterpiece. I mean, I could go on. Do the Right Thing is another perfect, I think it's the second movie that just breaks all the rules from the opening onwards. There's just no rules about when you have to keep story in a certain way or what scenes have to be or look like. And I screened those two movies and they were so profoundly meaningful to a bunch of kids from Uganda, young people from Uganda, who hadn't seen that many movies for the most part, because there's not a big movie theater culture there at the time. And both of those movies were so specific and so from the lived experience and what those filmmakers really cared about and knew that they translated without a hitch to the audience. It was really incredible. Uh, a revelation. Yeah, Rat Catcher's amazing. That's awesome. And do the right thing. Everyone should, yes. I feel like it should be the law that everyone has to go watch Do the Right Thing in 2020. Yes, yes. It's the perfect time for it. Um, but thank you so much, Semi, for taking the time to talk with us and for answering those questions, talking about your journey and giving those recommendations. And thank you to all of those of you who asked questions. Um, I strongly encourage you to go watch American Woman, which is out now. I, like, I personally thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, but that is all for this episode of Film Kid Asks. Be sure to subscribe and feel free to follow us on Twitter and Instagram or join our Facebook group. New episodes come out every Saturday. 